Thank you, Christina. Would you all pray with me as we begin our service this morning? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the great privilege it is to gather together and to study your word, to worship you, both through listening to your voice, opening our eyes and seeing you, hearing you with our ears, perceiving you with our hearts. God, we pray that you would be glorified in this time. We dedicate it to you. We dedicate the time to you and we pray that you would be glorified both in our study of your word and the singing of your praises in our celebration of communion as we remember your body and blood that were given for us. In all of the elements of the moments ahead, Lord, we praise you. We honor you. We pray that you would move in us, that we would hear you and be transformed. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning to you all, and uh, we are continuing in our series in the book of Hebrews. If you've been with us, we are now in Hebrews chapter 6, the text we just read. And if you were with us last week, uh, we saw the author has been sort of teaching. He moves into a conversation about Jesus as our high priest. Jesus, our high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and then he kind of stops. So if you were with us last week, there's kind of this pause. There's a parenthetical sort of aside where he says, hey, I've got a lot of things I want to tell you about Jesus as our high priest in the order of Melchizedek, but I kind of feel like I can't go on and say these things to you because while I want to share with you spiritual, spiritual meat, things for spiritual maturity, instead I have to only talk with you about spiritual milk because you live on milk, because you haven't been trained or discerned by what you've heard, because you haven't learned how to discern through constant use and practice the difference between good and evil and to put those things into play. He says you're still spiritual infants. And we talked last week about the problem that happens when we sort of become satisfied to just be spiritual babies, to be sort of arrested in our development, right? To just be infants and satisfied with that. Now as we come into chapter six, he's going to continue that same line of thinking and he's going to continue the warning. We see him continue the warning at the beginning of six, and then he, uh, he ends sort of this warning section before he goes back to a conversation about the high priesthood of Jesus. He finishes with, a, with an encouragement, but this morning, we find ourselves camped in Hebrews chapter six, one through eight. Now, if you know anything about the book of Hebrews, if you've ever studied it before, uh, when we announced that we were going to be studying the book of Hebrews, you probably thought, Oh man, you know, I wonder what's going to happen when we get to Hebrews chapter 6 because it is a highly and hotly contested section of scripture. In fact, if you were to grab 20 different commentaries, uh, you could probably find 20 different distinct interpretations of what exactly this text means, who it's talking to, what it's saying to them, and what their response should be. But what I want to warn us about this morning is that we don't get so distracted by the warning that we don't heed the warning. Does that make sense? I uh, I had the opportunity to go to an Angels game. That's a baseball team here in California. I don't know if you guys knew that. But a couple of years ago, I had a friend who bought tickets uh, to the Angels, and we were right down by the field. So, I mean, these were like, this was like two rows off the grass. It was behind home plate, but it was just to the right. You know how they have that net behind home plate that keeps people from getting hit by, you know, pitches and whatever? And then where the net ends, there's still like some seats. That's where I was sitting. I was sitting just outside of the net, uh, two rows from the grass. I mean, you could see facial expressions of the players. The coaches were right there. I mean, it was like the, the best seats I've ever sat in for a baseball game. And uh, one of the things I was so kind of fascinated by is when you walk down the aisle and you get to that last wall, there's actually a sign there on the wall that says, warning, beware of flying bats and baseballs. Like it's kind of like the splash zone at SeaWorld, except instead of getting splashed with water, you get hit with baseballs right here, you know? So there's this sign that says, warning, beware of flying bats. And I was like, 
I've never sat close enough to a baseball game to have to be worried about flying baseball bats. Like, this is so cool. I'm so close to the action that I'm in danger. Like, that's so cool. So I get my phone out, and I'm like, I gotta, I gotta put this on my Instagram, right? I want people to see how close I'm sitting. So I take a really cool shot of the sign. It says, beware, watch out for flying baseball bats, watch out for flying baseballs. I take a picture of the sign, and I'm, uh, I'm sitting in my seat, and I'm posting, I come up with a really clever thing I'm gonna say. I get just the right filter on it. You know, it's like, I just want people to know, like, look how close, there's a sign that says, be careful. And while I'm posting this sign, no joke, while I'm posting it, all of a sudden I hear people go, look out, right? And uh, so I assume that there's a fly ball and there's gonna be a ball coming from up in the sky. So I, I put both of my hands above my head and I duck down like this. And uh, the next thing I know, I feel a, a sharp and sort of jarring pain in my hand. It f- knocks my arm back. My phone goes flying out of my hand and lands in the aisle. And everybody kind of rushes over to me and they're like, are you okay? And I was like, what even just happened? They said you got hit with a baseball bat, right? So I'm, I'm texting like this. I'm texting the guy. They say, look out. I go like this. A guy swings. He turns loose of the bat. The thing helicopters. It hits my phone in my hand, knocks my phone out of my hand, knocks my hand back. I think it, I think it broke my finger, although I never got a cast or anything. It doesn't work as good since then, right? This finger, not as good. But here's the deal. I was so enamored by the warning, I didn't heed the warning, Right? I was so fascinated by the, you know, just the neatness of receiving that particular warning that I didn't take the warning to heart. You know, it is possible for us as Christians to become so fascinated by the interpretation of a text or the nuance, right? Or all of the different ways it can be read to be so fascinated by the warning that we don't actually heed the warning. I want us to be careful this morning as we look at a text that is complicated, admittedly. As we look at a text that is hotly contested, I don't want us to miss the opportunity to heed the warning. The writer of the, the, writer of the Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, continues his line of thinking. Remember, he's just said, we need to grow up spiritually. So now in verse 1 of chapter 6, he says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. He says, here's the thing. We don't want to be spiritual babies. We want to be trained through the constant use of the milk of the word to sort of flex our spiritual muscle and to grow up. He says, so let's move on. All of us, let's move on to maturity. And he says, we don't want to just be stuck in sort of a cul-de-sac of the, the ABCs. Remember last week? He talked about the oracles of God, the ABCs of faith. He says, we don't want to just get stuck in this loop where we're just constantly talking about the foundations, the basics. We don't want to repeat again. He's not saying that the foundational teachings about Christ or the foundational teachings are unimportant. He's just saying we don't want to get hung up there. And he gives essentially three sets of two foundational truths. He talks first about the repentance from works that lead to death, right? He says, let's move on away from the foundation of repentance of dead works and faith toward God. That is basically the origin story of every Christian. Jesus himself came and said, repent for the kingdom of God is available. Repent and believe, right? That's the message of the apostles in the book of Acts. Repent and believe. He says, let's move on from that foundation. 
of repenting on, from, from the works that lead to death and sin, separation from God, let's move on from the foundation of the fact that we have to put our faith in God in order to receive resurrection life. So things that happen in our, in our past. He says, let's also move on from the foundational conversations about things that happen in the present in the life of a Christian. When he talks about ceremonial washing, there is some allusion to the idea of the sort of the Judaistic ceremonial cleansing rituals, but there's also an allusion to the way in which those point ahead at baptism. For new Christians, they would have had conversations about what it meant to believe and be baptized. He talks about moving on from the foundational teaching of the laying on of hands, which happens in this time in conjunction with the commissioning of disciples to go out. It happens in the, in, in the context of praying for people, praying for healing, laying on of hands. He says, let's move on from the foundational things that happen in the present, the foundational things that have happened in the past, right? Repentance from works that lead to death, faith in God, ceremonial cleansings or baptism, right? He talks about the laying on of hands, and then he talks about things that happen in the future, right? The resurrection, right? He says, let's move on from this foundational instruction. Foundation of repentance from dead works, faith toward God, instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Those are both things that happen in the future. So past, present, and future in the life of a believer, there are these foundational things, and we could talk about them again and again and again, but at some point, they need to mature us. They need to turn into action. They need to grow our muscle, our spiritual muscle, so that we move on. He says, let's not just repeat these same foundations and move on. But then look at what he says in three. He says, after these uh, six foundational ideas, he says in verse three, and this we will do if God permits. That's interesting. It's not just a cliche. He's not just doing that thing that Christians sometimes do where they're like, Lord willing, we're going to go to Olive Garden. You know, it's not just like a cast aside. Uh, if God permits, he's trying to say something very profound and very theologically important. Remember that the writer to the Hebrews, in everything that he's doing, he's comparing and contrasting the experience of the people of Israel who were led out of slavery, who were led away from Egypt and toward the promised land, but ultimately were not able to enter the rest of God. Remember when we studied in chapters three and four, the author says again and again, let's not fall into the same mistake that our forefathers did, where even though they had seen God and even though they'd experienced God, even though they knew who he was and they had been following him, they were not able to enter into his rest. And he declared in his wrath, these people will not enter my rest. Why? Because they're not knowledge of God was not coupled with faith. Their knowledge of God was not followed by faith and action. They got to the edge of the promised land and they went, yeah, we look like grasshoppers to ourselves and to our enemies. And they were not able to enter the rest. He says, let's be careful that while the offer still stands, remember that in Hebrews three and four, while today is today, do not ignore the voice of God, but respond to it. Respond to it. He says here, so let's move on to maturity. Let's set aside the foundational teachings, the things we should already know, and let's move on to maturity, and we will do this if God permits. What's he saying? There is much that is dependent upon the sovereignty and the will of God. It isn't just about our whim. It's not just about our decision. It's not just about us deciding to go in. Because specifically, when you look at Numbers 14, it's interesting. After God looks at the Israelites, right? Remember they send the spies in? They send the spies into the land, they scout it out, they come back, they bring a report where they say, oh, the land is beautiful, it's got a lot of food, it's got a lot of water, it's got everything we need, but we can't go. We can't go. 
And the people grumble. Joshua and Caleb ultimately say, we can definitely do it. If God's with us, we can definitely do it. But the people try and kill Joshua and Caleb. So in Numbers 14, God comes and says, because this people has not coupled what they know of me with faith, none of them will enter the promised land. None of them will receive what I promised. Their bodies will fall in the desert, right? And what happens right after that? Do you know the story well enough to know? Right after that, the people of Israel go, we're going to die in the wilderness? You know what? Let's go into the promised land. How about that? Let's do it. Let, you know, we, were, we were not thinking straight before. We do want to go in and take the promised land. And Moses looks at them and he says, don't do it. Don't try it. Because at this point, you're not repenting from your lack of faith. You're not repenting from your lack of confidence in God. Now you're trying to go in and take the promised land by your own power. And if you try and go in and take the promised land by your own power, you will fail. And that's what they attempt to do. And they are routed in battle. They are wrecked because they try and go in. What happens? God does not permit them to go in. He does not permit them to go in in their own strength. He doesn't permit them to go in without repentance. He doesn't permit them to go in without their trust being in him, without their knowledge of him being coupled with belief and obedience. They don't go in. Later in the book of, uh, in the book of Hebrews, the, the writer will refer to Esau, who even though he really wanted the blessing, could not find repentance in his own heart, but it's because he was focused on the blessing and not on his own repentance. We'll talk about that when we get to it at the end of the book of Hebrews. So here he says, let's move on to maturity. We want to move on to maturity. We don't want to just repeat the same fundamental things, and this we will do if God permits. But God's permission, God's will is key because he says there is a thing that happens sometimes that you want to be aware of. And look at what he says. He says, let's move on, and this we will do if God permits. Verse four, for it is impossible In the case of those who have once been enlightened and who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now listen, that is a long and complicated sentence. And it's an, it's an even weirder sentence if you look at it in the original language. It's very difficult, depending on the translation you have, it's very difficult to sort of figure out how to organize these things so they're all pointing in the right direction. The verbs and the adverbs and the nouns. You know, I mean, it, it is a complex sentence. But he says, look, we will move on to maturity if God permits, but listen, it is impossible. Or there is a kind of person who is without power to repent in an ongoing way. And they're without power to repent in an ongoing way because they have fallen away from God. They've fallen away from him. And he says, this particular kind of person for whom they have no power to repent again is the kind of person who's been on the periphery of faith, who's experienced a lot of the things of faith, and yet turns his back on the truth he's seen and experienced. Let's just look at it here together. He gives uh, five descriptors, and these aren't necessarily important, but I just kind of want you to see them. He says it is impossible, or the person is without power, in the case of those who've once been enlightened. One who's, who's been enlightened, that's the first sort of descriptor of the kind of person he's talking about. Well, a person who's been enlightened is simply someone who's had the light shined into their life, someone who's been exposed to the truth, someone who's been woken up. 
And it is possible to be exposed to the truth of the gospel, exposed to the truth of God's word, exposed to the truth of the death and resurrection of Christ, the fact that there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. It's possible to know those things intellectually and not be trusting them, right? We talked a few weeks ago about the person who could look at the tightrope walker and say, yeah, I believe you can carry somebody across in a wheelbarrow, but I ain't getting in the wheelbarrow, right? Well, that's someone on the side who's enlightened to the skills of the tightrope walker, but isn't trusting in the tightrope walker. He says, there is a kind of person who's been enlightened, someone who has heard the truth, who knows the truth. This same person who's been enlightened, look what it says next. In the case of one who's been enlightened, who's tasted the heavenly gift. Now remember, the author is thinking in terms of the people of Israel. So a lot of these things have parallels in the people of Israel being brought out of Egypt. And so when he talks about enlightenment, he talks about the fact that God came and said in Exodus chapter six, I will be your God. You will be my people. I'm going to take you out of your slave, I'm, slavery. I'm going to take you away from your slave drivers and lead you into a promised land. Those are people who'd heard the promises of God. They were enlightened to those. They're also people who tasted the heavenly gift. In their case, the heavenly gift was manna. It was food that had been provided to them by God. They had tasted miraculous food that he provided for them, Right? They had drunk water from a rock. They tasted the heavenly gift. For us, when we think about tasting the heavenly gift, the greatest heavenly gift, the greatest thing we can sort of know is the sense of the gift of God, right? The gift of God in resurrection life in the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 6 says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. To taste that, to kind of know that Jesus is the way in which resurrection life can be had. There are people who've been enlightened. They've had their eyes opened. They've tasted something of the gift of God. Not only that, look at what it says next. He says, these are people who have been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit. Well, you might go, well, wait a second. People who share in the Holy, I mean, people who have the Holy Spirit, those are Christians, right? We're talking about Christians here who've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit and they fall away? Not necessarily. I don't think that's what the text is saying. We as a church recognize that there is an absolute security for those who are in Christ. As it says in Philippians, he who began a good work and you will continue it until the day of completion, right? Jesus himself says in John, my sheep know my voice. This is John 10. My sheep know my voice and they follow me. I hold them in my hand and nobody can snatch them from my hand. Let me read this to you. I don't want to paraphrase it poorly. In John chapter 10, Verse 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. We believe in what's called the perseverance of the saints, that someone who has received resurrection life from Christ is kept and their salvation is assured. So when you look at this and it says a shared in the Holy Spirit and has fallen away, there are a lot of people who go, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about Losing your salvation? No. Because it's also possible not to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and lose it, but it is possible to be experientially associated with the work of the Holy Spirit, right? Jesus himself says in the Sermon on the Mount that there will be a day coming, he says in Matthew 7, when people will come to him. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus speaking, says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus himself says there are people who will come and say, we've done all these Holy Spirit things, right? We've cast out demons and we've prophesied and we've healed. We've done all this experiential Holy Spirit stuff. We've, we've been to the show, right? And they'll say, right, I, I'm not denying that you've experienced those things or that you've been on the periphery of what the Holy Spirit does, that you've shared in the work of the Spirit. What I'm saying is you don't know me. And that's the problem in Matthew 7. So we come back to Hebrews 6, and he says, there is the kind of person for whom their eyes have been opened, they've been enlightened, they've tasted the gift of God, they've shared in the work of the Holy Spirit. Look at what else he says about them, Hebrews chapter 6. They've shared in the work of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. Tasted the goodness of the Word of God. I mean, we've talked already about the fact that there are people who come to church because they believe the Bible is a good book, right? Right? Why do you have your children involved in the ministries here? Well, I want my kids to know the Bible because it's, it's such a good book. It has so many good principles for life. There are so many great things it says about life and about living. It's such a good book, right? It is possible, again, to understand that the, the word of God has value, that the word of God is positive and affirming, that it has interesting principles for living your life without ever trusting in the word of God without ever believing in the power of God's word and its transformative effect, it is possible to go, I love the Bible, without being a follower of Jesus. I think the Bible is great, has some great things to say, without being a follower of Jesus. He says, there's a kind of person who's been enlightened, who's tasted the heavenly gift, has shared in the Holy Spirit, has tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Well, for the people of Israel who were leaving Egypt, they saw all kinds of powers. They saw the plagues. They saw the Red Sea parted. They saw the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that led them ahead. They had experienced the power of God. And for those who were involved in the church that the author of Hebrews is writing to, they had seen miraculous things happen. The apostles were traveling and doing some spectacular things. And you can look and go, wow, I see the power of God on display. Look at the power of the age to come. Both present now and still to come. They'd seen those things. And yet, despite that experience, despite the fact that they had tasted, that they had shared, that they had partaken, despite the fact that their eyes had been opened, it still says of this kind of person, the kind of person that's being warned here, this is the kind of person who's been enlightened, verse 6, and has fallen away. So that's also a descriptive characteristic of this person. A person who is turned away from all of those things. A person who is turned away from the truth that was enlightened to him or her. A person who is turned away and rejected the God with the power of the age to come. A person who has scorned the testimony of the Spirit of God as it convicted them. It says for a person who's seen all these things and experienced all these things and has fallen away, It's impossible for them to be renewed to repentance. That impossibility is not something necessarily that just sort of happens as like a a stamp on the deal, but there is an impossibility because there is no other repentance and there is no other salvation apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. I have a... uh, a buddy named Mike, who was a former missionary, and a few years ago, he's a, he's a friend of mine from Long Beach, a few years ago, Mike started having some severe pain in his foot, and uh, it, was, uh, it was kind of in the joints and in the foot, he didn't really know what it was, he went to a couple of different uh, podiatrists, that's what a foot doctor's called, I had to look that up, uh, so he goes to a couple of different foot doctors, and they go, yeah, this might be arthritis, it might be one of these other things, they gave him some medication, they did some x-rays, they tried some different things, 
It, it didn't help. None of the things they tried to do helped him. Uh, they gave him some physical therapy. They gave him a cat, like, a, like a, a brace to wear. None of that stuff helped. It got to the place where the pain was so severe that he had to walk with a cane. And then it got to the place where he couldn't walk at all. He's like on one of those little scooter things. And then it got to the place where he couldn't even come out of the house. He was in so much pain because of his foot that he, he couldn't go anywhere or do anything. It absolutely debilitated him entirely, this severe pain in his foot. And he'd been to all these doctors and all these specialists and all these different people. And finally, he goes to see a doctor he'd never been to before on the recommendation of somebody else. And the doctor looks at him and goes, I know exactly what this is. And I know exactly why nobody else has been able to help you. He says, you are dealing with a very rare, an incredibly rare nerve disease. And he's like, not many people know what it is. And its symptoms present themselves as all these other things. So all this other medicine, all this other work, I understand why the doctors told you to do that because of the nerve kind of problem you have. He says, I know exactly what this is. And the bad news is, while I know what it is, there's only one doctor in the world who has successfully done a procedure on that particular issue. And he's in Boston. And if you want to be relieved of your problem, you're going to have to go to the doctor in Boston and you're going to have to see a specialist to have this thing relieved. Now, can you imagine if at that point, after being enlightened to both his problem and the one solution for his problem, can you imagine after hearing about the fact that the doctor had successfully solved this in the past, having his eyes opened, experiencing the truth, understanding it, can you imagine if he said, you know, I think I'm just going to keep taking aspirin, right? You go, well, that's a dummy, right? That's a dumb guy, right? Who ignores the solution and instead goes his own way. Who would do that? The writer of the Hebrews says, be careful. Be careful, those of you who are reading and listening to this letter. Be careful, those of you who are being attentive to the spirit of God, because there is a kind of person who has experienced Christianity who has had their minds enlightened, who has been in the periphery of the work of the Spirit of God, who has even tasted some of the things of God, who loves God's word in a sort of cursory way and has experienced his power and yet falls away. And for that person, when in full knowledge, they know who Christ is, they know what he's done, they know of the exclusivity of salvation, and they turn away, there's nowhere else for them to go. They are without power in themselves to repent again. Because that repentance can only happen in Christ. And if they've rejected him, they're utterly lost. They're utterly lost. He says this. He says, it's impossible in the case of those who've been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. It's very similar to what Jesus talks about in the parable of the seeds, right? The parable of the seeds, you know, the, the four soils where he says this, the seeds go out and they produce a different response. There, there is the seed, remember, that springs up quickly and it produces a, 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 a plant, but it has no root and it quickly withers. Luke chapter eight, verse 13, Jesus says, the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while and in the time of testing, fall away. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, well, what are we talking? I mean, does this, does this truly and genuinely happen? Like, there are people who can see and experience to know who God is and yet fall away? Yeah, it really happens. It's a sincere warning, and it's a dire warning. I'll give you, I'll give you a couple of examples of places in the Bible where we see this happening. I'll give you one very prominent name. How about Judas? 
who was a disciple of Jesus. You couldn't really get any closer to Jesus, right? This is a guy who was firsthand witness to the teaching of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, who understood the things that Jesus had said. And for all intents and purposes, the other disciples were not suspicious of him, right? There's no place in the Bible where the other disciples look at Judas and go, you know, he doesn't really seem like he gets it. You know, he kind of seems like a faker. You know, he sort of seems like a guy who's just tagging along because at some point he wants to betray Jesus. Maybe we should get rid of him. No, this is a guy who for all intents and purposes looked like an insider. And he saw all the same things the other disciples saw. He witnessed all the things. He heard all the things. He was there and yet turned away. I also think of Simon the Magician in Acts chapter 8, right? You can look that up later. But Simon the Magician, here's the message of Peter in Acts chapter 8. Peter's message, repent and believe. And that's what Simon the Magician does. It says he hears the message, he believes, and he's baptized even. And then in the very next section, it says Simon the Magician is watching Peter and the other apostles as they lay their hands on people to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Simon the Magician goes, hey, I like that trick. That would be great to add to my repertoire. Who do I have to pay to be one of those guys who gets to put their hands on somebody else and give them the Holy Spirit? I want that trick. And Peter looks at him and he says, cursed are you, Simon, right? You better be careful, Simon. You need to turn to God. You need to repent and pray to God that he forgives you because you, you perceived or looked like you believed and were baptized, and yet now you've turned the things of God to something for your own personal gain. You better be careful. And Simon doesn't do that. Instead, he looks at the apostles and says, well, why don't you pray to God for me? History tells us, and this is anecdotal, but history will say that Simon the magician became one of the greatest heretics of all time. That he's a guy who looked like something at the outset, but wasn't actually that. You see, what, what the author is warning us about here, the power of the Holy Spirit inspired the author to speak to us with a warning that says it is possible to look like a follower of Christ and not be a follower of Christ. To experience the things that the followers of Christ experience and yet not actually have put your faith in Christ. He says we want to go on to maturity. We, want, we don't want to revisit all these same fundamental things. We want to move on and we will if God permits. But we are without power to repent again if we've tasted all of these things, if we've seen them and experienced them and we fall away. Why? He says, because for that person, look at verse seven. No, sorry, verse six. He says, it's impossible because they are crucifying once again the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. That, that verse is translated really strangely, but the idea there is that they are crucifying Christ in an ongoing way internally and that they are shaming Christ publicly. You see, it's one thing for someone who's completely ignorant of who Christ is, someone who doesn't know Christ and hasn't heard the truth of what Christ did. It's one thing for that person to say, I'm not really into Jesus because they're doing it in ignorance. But it's another thing entirely for someone who knows what Christ did, who knows who Christ is, who knows what he sacrificed in order to obtain resurrection life for us. It's another thing entirely for someone who's informed to turn away. He says in that case, that person has basically shown solidarity with those who yelled out for the crucifixion of Christ. Remember those people? The ones who on Palm Sunday were fanning him and saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, laying down the palm fronds on the path in front of him. Here's the Messiah, they said. And only a few days later, they're yelling, crucify him. He says to see him and to know him, to have experienced the work of God and yet to turn away, to reject and renounce the faith, you put him to public shame, you put him to public shame, but there's also an internal choice to crucify him again. 
And those people are without power to repent because the only place repentance happens is in the power of God. In the same way that my friend Mike will never find resolution for his foot, which by the way, he went to the doctor in Boston and he's almost all better now, right? Kind of cool. If my friend Mike rejects what he's learned about the one doctor who can solve his problem, then he's stuck there. There's no place else for him to go. The author and writer of the Hebrews gives us sort of an illustration here at the end in verse seven. He says, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Okay, that's heavy, right? This is a heavy warning. This isn't just a little like, hey, you know what? You might think about, you know, being true in your faith. You might think about actually taking the milk of God's word and discerning right and wrong and then putting it into practice and doing it. This is, hey, be careful because the rain of God's blessing falls on a a piece of land, right? The rain of God's blessing falls. And one of two things happens. When the rain of God's blessing falls, it either produces fruit to the glory of God and the good of other people. And in that case, that is someone who has been transformed by the power of God. Where there is life, there is growth, they say, right? Where there is life, there is growth. Same parcel of land receives the same rain of God's blessing and thorns and thistles are produced. The only thing that parcel of land is good for, well, it says it's worthless, first of all. And it's near to being cursed. And it's only good to be burned. This is a heavy warning. It's a heavy warning. I I think of what it says even later in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. It says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? This is a serious warning. The blessing of God's rain, it pours on all of us, but where there's life, there's fruit. And so the warning is for us to look into our lives and say, what is the fruit that's being produced? Is there fruit that's being produced? I think what happens sometimes when we look at a passage like Hebrews chapter six, there may be some of you are going, is that me? Am I I the one for whom it's impossible to repent? Am I someone who's fallen away and that's it, it's over for me? Let, Let me just set your mind at ease. If you're asking that question this morning, you're not too far gone. If you're asking the question this morning, if you're taking the warning on the chin and going, I have to pay more careful attention. I have to not be satisfied to stay a spiritual infant, but I have to move on to maturity by the power of God. If you're someone here who can take the warning on the chin, who feels a sense of alertness at hearing about one who can experience all these things and yet fall away, you're in good shape. But what happens is over time, when the Spirit of God convicts and the Spirit of God convicts, When the Spirit of God says, die to yourself, when he says, serve your neighbor, when he says, love one another, when he says, give, right? Give to each other. Give. Don't be selfish. When the Spirit of God convicts us to live out the truth of the gospel and we continue to put that aside, we continue to ignore it, we continue to stop up our ears and cover our eyes and harden our hearts, as we do that, there is a point that comes where you can hear a warning like this and it doesn't bother you at all. There is a point that comes where you can hear a warning like this and go, eh, whatever. Those are the people who are 
being referred to in this text. It's not the people who can wake up and go, well, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be someone who's slowly being atrophied. My heart is being atrophied to the point where I fall away from Christ. The Bible teaches that it is always possible for us to repent. It is always possible for us who are awakened and, 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 and uh, convicted by the Spirit of God to turn again to him and repent, and he will heal us. The problem comes when we have ignored the Spirit of God and we've become dull of hearing when we become atrophied in our heart. And there is a point, according to the scripture, there is a point at which the spirit of God will stop convicting us if we don't respond to that conviction. We can never count on the fact that the spirit of God will convict us again. We're not sure of that. We're not certain of it. So when the spirit of God convicts us, we have to respond with obedience and humility. We have to respond with obedience and humility. This isn't meant to scare Christians, right? It's not meant to scare Christians because the idea here is we believe that we are secure in Christ, the verses I already read to you. But it is meant to be a warning to those of us who may be enlightened, who may have tasted and seen, who may have experienced some Christian things, who maybe love God's word as a, as a literary piece, right? People who've seen the power of the ages to come but have not yet fallen away. Those who've seen all those things and they look like Christians, they know how to walk through the motions, they know how to put on the front and they have not fallen away yet, but falling away is in your immediate future. Take the warning to heart and turn to Christ. Don't make the same mistakes that our forefathers made who saw him. He led them out of Egypt and yet they were not able to enter his rest. It's clear in this text, and we'll look at the verse next week, but in 6-9 it says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. The author of the Hebrews says, even though I've said all this, i got to tell you, I don't really think that's you. He says to those he's writing to, I don't really think that's you. I expect better things, things that lead to salvation, right? His expectation is this isn't for them. But the reality is, even in what he says in verse 9, that he can't know. He doesn't know the reality of whether people have truly been redeemed by Christ or whether they're putting on a show. It says in Hebrews 3.14, remember that? We studied a couple weeks ago. You and I know we share in Christ if we continue until the end with the faith we had at first. I think people sort of want get to into, get into heaven free card, don't you? You want to just be able to sort of have your passport stamped or you pray the magic prayer or you jump through the hoop or whatever you got to do and then it doesn't matter how you live, whether or not you obey, whether or not you, you drink the milk of God's word and discern right and wrong and do anything with it, that you just sort of get your passport stamped and it's done. You can go do whatever you want. The Bible says that the proof of life, the proof of life in each and every one of us is continuance. You want to know for sure that you have resurrection life through the shed blood of Christ? The way you know that is through continuance. That you don't just see these things and experience them and taste them and then turn away. But that you, but that you follow him, that you obey him. The writer says we want to move on to maturity and this we will do if God permits. But there are examples in the Bible of people who were not permitted to enter into the promised land or people who did not receive their blessing. Even though they wanted to go into the promised land, even though they wanted their blessing, they were not permitted to have those things because they weren't repentant Because they weren't focused on God, they were focused on themselves. He says, let's not be like them. There is a warning here for us. It's talking about those who look like Christians, but then fall away. 
And in this room, I think each and every one of us have to look into our own hearts and say, is that me? Am I someone who's just sort of putting on the facade? And am I someone who just knows how to walk through the motions? Or am I someone who is truly submitted to the Spirit of God, dependent upon the sacrifice of Christ, and living in obedience and response? We don't live in, res- in obedience in order to earn something. We live in obedience, and that obedience is proof of what he's given us by his grace. But there is a warning for each and every one of us to look into our own hearts. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would stir in us a sense of heightened awareness. That you would give us the ability to look at our lives and recognize the places where we may be slowly turning from you. Or even though we've tasted your word, even though we've seen your power on display, even though we've been enlightened to your truth, there are places where we are turning away, where we're turning away bit by bit, and it's only a matter of time before we fall away entirely. And there is no power for us to repent again once we've given up the only way through which reconciliation can happen. Would you alert us to that? Would you make us aware of it? Would you give us hearts to care for those who've perceived Christianity as just something to do and have not put their faith in who you are? Stir in us a heart of response, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to continue our worship this morning through our giving. I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward. We worship God through the study of his word. We worship him through the songs that we sing. In a few moments, we're gonna take communion together, a celebration of the body and blood of Christ given for us. We celebrate and worship and glorify God through the giving of our offerings. Every generation of Christ followers have been people who made sacrifices. And in this place, we don't take an offering because God needs our money. We don't take an offering to keep the lights on or whatever. We take an offering because God responds and is glorified through, through our generosity, giving back to him out of the overflow of our hearts. We see God working in so many amazing places around this church and around this city, around this world. We invite you to make sacrifices and be a part of that. I want to invite you to to remain seated for a few minutes and then once the offering plates go by, we want to respond in worship in a way that feels true. You can stand, you can sit, you can kneel, you can put your hands in the air, you can put them in your pockets, but look for a response to God that is true. What we're looking for is true worship spirit and truth. And so we invite you to take a posture that feels honest this morning as we respond to God through song. And then in a few moments, we'll celebrate the Lord's table together as well.